0: burden of proof studies. Is this a new way to assess evidence of risk?
1: How much of Medicare expenditure is due to prescription drugs?
0: Can we teach teenagers about vaping and get them to stop doing it or not start?
1: What's the burden of bacterial antibiotic resistance in the European region?
0: That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: Rick, how about if we start with something that I'm really very interested in, which is this notion of Medicare being able to take a look at drug prices. This is a study in JAMA, and it's looking at prescription drug spending in fee-for-service Medicare for a decade.
1: Great. And when we talk about fee-for-service Medicare. There are people that are on traditional Medicare with parts A, B, and D. And that has to do with in-hospital outpatient stuff and then the pharmacy prescription plan and a Medicare Advantage. So this looks specifically at those that are in the fee-for-service Medicare from 2008 to 2019. And they wanted to estimate the proportion of healthcare spending that was contributed by prescription drugs. It's been said from the pharmaceutical companies that their prescription cost for Medicare patients is really relatively low, it's about 10%. These particular investigators looked at over 3 million beneficiaries When you look at their prescription cost, it wasn't 10%. It actually started about 24% of their Medicare cost and then rose. To 27% over the course of the 10 years. The first question here is what accounts for that increase in cost? Because we're supposedly be going to generic drugs, which should be cheaper. Even the switch to generic drugs, they've raised the cost of those generic drugs. Number one. Number two, the Medicare B part, that is the clinician-administered prescriptions, has increased about 150% over the course of this time period. So we're prescribing more medications. They cost more, even the generic brand, and then and the newer ones that come on the market are extremely expensive.
0: Now, how do you feel that this legislation that's just about to come into practical use, enabling Medicare to negotiate drug prices, is going to impact this?
1: This is the Inflation Reduction Act Act. It includes elements, as you said, of drug price negotiation for only a subset of the older, higher price drugs that lack competition in Medicare B or D. By the way, that didn't happen for another four years, but doesn't have any limits on the prices of new set drugs.
0: So what do we tell people when yeah. they talk about just how really challenging it is to afford the medicines that they're prescribed?
1: Well, since the Part B drugs have increased substantially, we need to make sure that people have some sort of supplemental coverage. Because even with the act that you mentioned, if you don't have supplemental coverage, you end up paying for a significant portion up to 20% of those medication costs. This doesn't even include inpatient drugs, for example. So that would even raise it even higher. We need to address the gaps even in this inflation reduction act that we talked about.
0: More to come, unquestionably. Let's turn to nature medicine. This is a new paradigm that is called burden of proof studies, and these are meant to assess the evidence of risk. How do we objectively judge the relative impact of these risks? And that's really the upshot of any scientific inquiry, or many of them anyway. So this is a new suite of meta-analyses that's termed the burden of proof studies that help to evaluate methodologic issues objectively and quantitatively in order to interpret data. They identify others, including GRADE and Cochrane reviews, And they also attempt to aggregate evidence across multiple studies and enable a quantitative comparison of risk outcome pairs. They call this, as I said, the burden of proof risk function, abbreviated BPRF. Then they said, all right, we've developed this particular way of looking at the data. We have four exemplars of risk outcome pairs, smoking and lung cancer, systolic blood pressure and ischemic heart disease, vegetable consumption and ischemic heart disease, and unprocessed red meat consumption and ischemic heart disease. All circumstances that we've talked about many, many times of these four studies, I picked unprocessed red meat consumption. They applied this burden of proof study to this whole thing. They find that relaxing conventional log linearity assumptions And incorporating between study heterogeneity in their meta-analysis, they found no evidence of an association between unprocessed red meat and ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. Hmm. Guess what? This is not really an association that we can support using this new paradigm that we've developed.
1: And they also found that there was a very weak association with eating unprocessed red meat and colorectal cancer, breast cancer, type 2 diabetes, and ischemic heart disease. So here's what this burden of proof tries to do. You have a number of studies, and they're conflicting. How do you assess that? We actually look at the strength of the studies, and you put more weight in the stronger studies and less weight in the studies that are weaker. When you do that, again, looking at red meat consumption, it doesn't look like there's any really strong evidence suggesting that it has these adverse outcomes we've talked before. More
0: about. Right. Now I would also note that with regard to smoking, they have a star rating that is the outcome of this burden of proof paradigm. In smoking and lung cancer, they give it five stars because they're saying, you know, sure enough, there's a really strong association. And similarly, blood pressure and heart disease also demonstrates that that's a correct interpretation of the multitude of data that's out there. However, this red meat thing, of course they only gave it two stars and then vegetable consumption and ischemic heart disease also only ended up with two stars
1: yeah and it's harder when you have observational studies like these because people report on what they think they eat and then if you don't eat something you're replacing it with something else so let's say you don't eat red meat but you replace it with a bunch of sugar stuff well then that's going to kind of negate any benefit so you're right these star system is a way of, again, assessing the strengths of the studies. And hopefully when we're comparing studies, we'll do it more from this kind of a viewpoint, the burden of proof.
0: But we're going to be talking about it.
1: Speaking of strong evidence, Elizabeth, let's turn to Lancet bacterial resistance.
0: Huge emerging or increasing problem, I should say.
1: We've talked before about the fact that I'm going to call it antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance. They call it AMR. represents really a pretty crucial threat to public health across the globe. Now, this particular study focused on the European region. They wanted to dig down and not just look at it globally, but look at it at individual countries and regions as well so they can assess how antimicrobial resistance can affect mortality so we can learn how to address it. They looked at the number of deaths in which infection had a role and the proportion of those deaths, which were attributable to a given infectious disease, and then looked at organisms that had resistance to antibiotics. Here's what they discovered. They estimated there were about a half a million deaths, specifically 541,000 deaths that were associated with bacterial antimicrobial resistance, and 133,000 deaths attributable to bacterial antimicrobial resistance in the whole European region. This was in 2019. Most of these were either bloodstream infections, intra-abdominal infections, or respiratory infections. The leading pathogens were E. coli and staph aureus.
0: Clearly something that we've been trying to get our arms around for quite a while with antibiotic stewardship and all sorts of surveillance activities underway. How does this compare to other causes of death? And is there any data in this study relative to increasing, decreasing, or staying the same?
1: Now, this, just look at one particular year. It didn't compare it to other causes of death, but we know that this is a leading cause of death, especially because of lack of what I'm going to call appropriate antibiotic stewardship. I mean, just the random use of antibiotics, especially if you can get them over the counter, they're treating oftentimes infections that aren't bacterial to begin with, they're viral infections, and they may or may not even be the right antibiotic. And as a result of this poor antibiotic stewardship, it's led to increasing antimicrobial resistance.
0: And of course, as people travel, they take their bugs with them.
1: They do. The global traveling that we're doing spreads not only viral infections like COVID, but also bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics as well.
0: Well, let's conclude then with Gemma Network Open. And this is a look at the impact of vaping prevention advertisements on U.S. adolescents. And it's actually a randomized clinical trial. Interestingly, the FDA has this advertising program that's called Real Cost. I actually looked at it. I decided, all right, I need to see what this thing really looks like. These are what amount to 30-second commercials. They're trying to bring awareness to the harms that are associated with vaping, or they also in this study looked at addiction-themed advertisements. They had three groups of U.S. adolescents between the ages of 13 and 17 who they identified as susceptible to vaping, and they assessed that by asking about their attitudes about this. They had three, those who were in the intervention group, randomly ordered 30-second video advertisements online at each of three weekly study visits. They asked, hey, does this have any impact on your susceptibility to taking on vaping after you take a look at it? They had 1,514 adolescents, 506 in the real cost health harms group, 506 in the real cost addiction group, and 504 in the control group. The outcome was they actually were able to show a decline in susceptibility to vaping. The real cost groups, those who saw these advertisements, irrespective of whether it was relative to the health harms group or the addiction group. They didn't differ one from another with regard to this decline in susceptibility afterwards. So this sounds like it's a pretty positive outcome.
1: Yeah, a really well done study, a large group of individuals, 1,500 adolescents, looking at advertisements, one is neutral, and then say, okay, we're going to talk about the health harms in one group, and the other group, we're going to talk about the risk of addiction. And by the way, both of those messages mattered to the adolescents. As you mentioned, not only did it spill over to vaping, it also spill over to smoking as well.
0: Let's note that these folks were paid $35 for completing this study. I'm wondering about how we're going to actually get these kids to watch these things, because it seems to me that unless they're on TikTok or someplace else, the likelihood that they're going to run into them is pretty small.
1: You hit the nail on the head. They need to be targeted to what the youth are watching. The first part of this study was to prove that these messages can be effective. The second is to get them in front of the youth, places they're watching. Even in our society where we have a short attention span, most individuals still watch a 30-second advertisement.
0: I agree. Now, of course, I have to say, me being me, that what in the world are we doing allowing vaping products to be purveyed anyway?
1: It was sought, hopefully, to decrease the risk of smoking. And what we discovered is that when introduced to adolescents, vaping not only has its own health problems, but it also increases the risk of smoking as well. That's why this particular study, looking at ways of informing use about the health harms and the addiction, is so incredibly important.
0: That's a look at this week's Medical Headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.